What does it take to win? What does it take to be a winner? I'm Wesley Donahue, and I'm here to answer those questions. And today I'm joined by political operative Jordan Russell. Based out of Oxford, Mississippi, Jordan has worked as a senior staffer on Capitol Hill, presidential campaigns, and as the campaign manager for U.S. Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, which is where I met him. And now he serves as a senior strategist for political campaigns right here at Push Digital. So what's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Happy to be home off the road. I was about to ask, that was my next question. Are you in uh, Mississippi or Atlanta? I'm back home in Oxford. Yeah, I uh, spent many nights over in Atlanta and uh, been home the past few days, which has been good. So, Are you living in the Scott Howe, Phil Vangelakis house when you're there? Are you part of the party, the frat house? You know, I was lucky enough to, uh, there was no room at the end, so to speak. So I, I got to, I got kicked uh, a cheap hotel down the street. Um, so I, I missed out on the uh, the communal activities and the dishwashing and, and and all that at the frat house. So, you know, I miss it though. Like it's it's easy to look and say like, oh, that sucks. They're all living together in a house, but the campaigns that I've done that I've had a blast. And on it, you know, we're older with wives and kids, so it's harder to do. But those were actually the most fond moments of my life. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's a, it's, it's an odd dynamic when it's like people above the age of 30 though, you know, like when you're like in your twenties, it's just like, you love it. But uh, it, it's, it's definitely a little bit different experience. When you go over there and it's like three grown adults, like all in the house together, but uh, no, it's good. They have, they got the, they got, you know, good workspace set up over there and all that. So it was fun. But, uh, I, I didn't hate going back to the hotel to sleep though. I have to say. So Elizabeth and I started dating in 04 during the Jim DeMint campaign. And we had a campaign mm-hmm. house and like five of us campaign guys lived in this apartment together. So uh, dating, it made dating a girl very difficult. Let's just say. I can imagine so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you're the very first person we've had from Push Digital. How do you, how do you like your job? T- tell Tell your boss how you like your job, man. Uh, I love my job, Wes. Very, very happy to be here. Yeah, so I'm good. I'm a good soldier. Yeah, I can I can hit that talking point. No, everything's good, man. Nah, We're, uh, this has been this has been a fun cycle. So looking forward to the next one. Well, you know, for our listeners, you know, Push is 13 years old now, and we've always had a bunch of Indians and no Chiefs. Is that? Is, can you even say that these days? I don't know. Might, I think you're. Might, I think I'm you're like, okay. Okay, good. Um, meaning we've always had like a badass team of young folks, but not enough folks at the top. So really about three years ago, Phil and I decided that we couldn't grow the company unless we bring on some really experienced, badass operatives and consultants like yourself. And I think you were the very first one we offered a job to coming off of, cause we, we, I met you during the Cindy Hyde Smith race. So we right. needed people that had had that experience running those statewide races, man. So we couldn't be more excited to have you here. And obviously, you know, you've been a massive asset to us on the Herschel Walker campaign. So what are you doing over there right now? Comms mostly, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, Scott, campaign manager, is an old friend of mine. He's helped me out. I was joking with him the other day that uh, during Cindy Hyde Smith's race, I was managing that campaign. And Scott would come over from Atlanta to Jackson and, and kind of help me out. And I'd always give him a hard time about disappearing when i had to make the hard decisions and all that but um 
I, uh, so now the roles are reversed. I pop into town to help him out and, and disappear too. So uh, now I've been helping Scott and Phil just the, yeah, with the communications efforts and just helping him keep the trains running on time, mostly being a, being a sounding board for him and, and uh, just helping out where I can. So, you know, when, when you and I get together, you know, whether it's in the office or over drinks, we're always talking about the immediate fire we have to put out. So I never have even asked you, like, how did you get started in politics? Well, going way, way back, I, even into high school, I, you know, my, my parents were involved in politics. Um, and actually, I, I claim this and no one's ever fact checked me, so I just keep saying it. But I think I'm the only second generation Haley Barber uh, employee because my mother worked for Haley Barber for Senate in 1982 when she was like 19. Um and then uh, I worked, volunteered, and I guess was a high school staffer uh, when he ran for governor in 03. And I actually worked on Chip Pickering's race in 02 uh, for that same group of guys, just like high school volunteer putting out signs and all that. Mm-hmm. I always liked it. I just always kind of had a campaign bug. My dad uh, was a position, but he was you know, politically active. Mississippi had a big tort reform battle uh, when I was in high school where lawsuit abuse was out of control medical malpractice insurance was like driving doctors out of the state and all this kind of stuff. And Haley kind of spearheaded that effort. And that's kind of what he, he rode that issue to winning back then, you know, we had an incumbent Democrat governor. It sounds weird to say now, but it was very competitive. I mean, I think he beat Musgrove by just a couple of points in 03. And so that was kind of a formative experience. My dad was involved and it kind of affected his profession. So I saw kind of immediately the connection between who's in political power and how it impacts people's lives. Right. That, you know, that if we didn't reform the way we did, uh, you know, lawsuits and litigation in Mississippi, wouldn't have any doctors or not enough doctors. So mm-hmm. um, that was kind of a formative experience for me. And then I went to college and kind of put politics on hold and did the college thing for a while. And then uh, worked on a couple campaigns, long story short, but I, I worked for a guy named Alan Nunnally right out of college who got elected to Congress. Um, you know, it was my first job out of college, drove him everywhere he went for 18 months. And then uh, he asked me to go to DC with him and the rest is kind of history. So so let me ask you this. I know you weren't prepped for this one, but we actually don't talk to a lot of people whose spouses are also in politics, but you have a wife in politics. How, <laughs> how, how is that? How is balancing? I mean, she's Republican, luckily, right? So at least you don't have to balance like the spouse who's a Democratic operative. But how, how's that going? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, Lee is she's the CFO of the political committee and she's really uh, I think she, if she was sitting here, she would nod her head in agreement. She's not really. Uh, on the political side, she works more on the administration and payroll and campaign finance compliance, you know, kind of the back office stuff. She she doesn't uh, like to be involved in sort of the the knife fighting of politics, which speaks well to her character that she puts up with all of us that right. that do. But um, but yeah, so it's been fun. I mean, it really, she's she's so easygoing and low key. It's never been too big a deal for us. <laughs> I've had a bunch of different jobs over the last eight to ten years, and she's had one. Um, so she's been the steady hand. Um, and so for us, it's always been been pretty easy. Um, mostly ninety nine percent credit to her. I guess one percent maybe I did something good, but. Lee, Lee steers the ship pretty calmly for us. So that's, that hasn't been too bad. That's typically how it is, man. So my wife was in politics as a political fundraiser. And when we had our first kid, um, 
she, so being a fundraiser, she was like us. She was in it and and the bullshit of it. And when we had our first kid, we were like, all right, that's enough. We we can't both do this anymore. And she had she's never looked back, and not once has she missed me in politics. And in, and in fact, the other day when it was time to vote, she came to me and was like, who should I vote for? Because she had paid zero <laughs> attention to it, and she loves it that way now. But um, anyway, so tell me, you know, obviously the purpose of this podcast is uh, to hear stories so that folks could learn lessons. So. You know, let's dive in, man. Tell me one of your favorite campaign stories. Yeah, I mean the the story I go back to that I don't, I don't know how it could start anywhere else was the the 2014 Cochran McDaniel uh, student race here in Mississippi, which I I've told people over the years that it was really the uh, the the precursor to the Trump era. It was really the first uh, sort of Trumpian uh, era battle in a Republican primary. And I don't think we realized it at the time that that would be the case. You know, Senator Cochran had been in office for a long time and had done a lot of great work for Mississippi and uh, was kind of an old school, you know, moderate, uh, you know, famously got along with everybody, was just the nicest guy in the Senate, uh, you know, a bipartisan kind of deal maker type. Um, and, you know, Chris McDaniel, who was a state senator at the time, was a firebrand, a very very, uh, you know, hardcore conservative guy and who's actually thinking about primary or lieutenant governor this coming year. So it seems like I uh, was old as new again, you know, going on nine years later. But um, so I, I was on the Hill and I got hired to be the communications director for the campaign for Senator Cochran. And it, it was, I think, the most expensive primary that cycle. I mean, you know, the outside groups on both sides spent a ton of money and it was a wild ride. And I mean, I could, <laughs> it would probably be too long for this podcast to go into all the crazy stories. We had nursing home break-ins and people getting locked in courthouses with ballot boxes and New York times investigations into people's houses and how they were financed and this, that, and the other. And uh, there's all kinds of twists and turns and, and some ugly stuff that went on too. But in the end, you know, the crazy part was that, you know, Mississippi have to have a 50% plus one to win. And there was a third guy on the ballot. And the day before the election, uh, the first vote, I remember going to lunch with our pollster and, and a couple of our senior guys. And, and he said, you know, you really need to start thinking about a runoff. And it was like the day before the election. I just, I've been out on the road and I just hadn't even, I, mean, I was just, you know, I'd been traveling with the candidate. I hadn't really been thinking about it. And I said, a runoff. And he said, yeah, this is so close that, if that guy gets one or two percent, it really might end up like 49, 48 or something like that. And it had been such a long campaign. It was just like, there's no way that's going to happen. you know. <laughs> and sure enough, he was right. And, uh, you know, Chris actually finished first. He beat us in the first go around by half a percent. Oh, shit. And and uh, the thing that was interesting about it, the, the wild part and the way we ended up winning, one, that some people came out to vote in the runoff that didn't the first time around but the biggest part was that we had a significant influx of african-american votes in the runoff which was very unusual for a republican primary in mississippi um but if you didn't vote in the other in the democrat primary the first go around you were eligible to vote in the runoff and that was most of them because they didn't have a competitive primary and senator cochran it's been a long time over his career working with with the the democratic leadership in mississippi the african-american community even though you know, they didn't traditionally vote vote for Republicans. He he had good working relationships with them. And uh, it was just a really interesting, surreal experience 
you know, to be a Mississippi operative. And I remember going to a, an event and that runoff was me and Senator Cochran, maybe one other staffer. And I think we were the only non-African-Americans at this event, two or 300 people. And a, and a leader of the group put his hand on Senator Cochran's shoulder and said, I've never asked any of you to vote in a Republican primary before in my life. And I probably won't ever again, but you're going to vote for this guy on June, whatever it was. And, and, and it worked, you know, I mean, we, and we ended up winning by about 2% in the runoff. And, and I tell that story to say, cause it was, you know, such a unique way of getting at a problem that, um, a lot of people involved in it, you know, worked really hard to make it happen. And I remember on election night, David, was it Pluff, Obama's guy, um, you know, his senior strategist tweeted out like, you know, it's not my party, it's not my thing, but hats off to the Cochran people for coming up with a, a creative campaign strategy to pull off a win, you know. <laughs> so uh, that was always kind of a, a a defining thing for me, but it was um, it was a wild experience and, and, a, and, and a lesson that, you know, if, if you can think creatively and, and look for ways to solve a problem that looks unsolvable, you know, it, it is possible. So, so if you're saying pre Trump, this was like early tea party. Yeah, it was 2014. The reason I say that is when I got down there from DC, you know, Matthew Boyle, who is a reporter at Breitbart to this day, you know, kind of hit me up, reached out to me and I just treated him like any other normal reporter. And he was, and I would say this if he was sitting here, it was very hostile. You know, it was like, yeah. whoa, what is going on here? And it was kind of the first race or one of the first races that, the, that Breitbart really, you could tell it was kind of like, this is going to be a partisan media yeah. effort kind of, you know, it was almost like they were an extension of the McDaniel campaign. And I mean, all those characters, Steve Bannon, Boyle, um, you know, the club for growth was, was on Chris's side too, but it was, it was a definitely, you know, a very clearly, you know, quote, insider versus outsider as they like to define it you know kind of thing tea party versus the rhino yeah i mean that had been in office for 40 years and he was on appropriations and he was known as being the guy that you know brought on the bacon from mississippi but that's what they sent him up there to do for a long time and and um so it was kind of a shock to the system and it was interesting because there was just you know the battle lines were pretty clearly drawn you could even see in the state where you know the more traditional establishment people versus the, the sort of populist crowd. And it was very evenly divided. Um, and, but yeah, and, and there was, it was just the style of, of the messaging, the, we don't care about bringing home the bacon. I mean, the, the fact that he had such a groundswell of support to come within a whisker of knocking off probably the most legendary uh, elected official in Mississippi's history, you know, spoke to the, the the, the uh, energy was all on that side and it was 2014 you know then next you know spring of 2015 trump comes on the scene and you know the rest is history so in 2007 i got my first big win on my own and it was a guy named shane massey uh to the south carolina state senate who is now the majority leader in the south carolina state senate and to this day one of my closest friends and it was a 41% BVAP district. So 41% black voting age population. And the firm I was working for at the time, First Tuesday, the owners even forbid me from running the race and recruiting this guy because they thought we would just get our asses handed to us. Um, to this day, 
Uh, Shane was the only candidate I've ever worked for that went to NAACP meetings. He went to black churches on Sundays and he knocked on black doors because very similar. We knew that we had to get a certain percentage of the black vote to win. And I guess my point is that I'm not saying that at this moment in time, we can go and get the majority of African-American voters, but we never put an effort to even go and get like 5% of them. And those small numbers add up as we see in Georgia right now, you know, going into uh, election night, you could see how five, 10,000 votes across millions and millions of votes. And and I guess it's just an, um, a bang for your buck type thing or bang for your time type thing that we just don't want to do it. But I've been arguing that, you know, when you go into a recession, you look at inflation, those things hit minority communities the hardest and hit them first. And I think there's an opportunity right now for Republicans to get creative and go out and knock out three or four percent of an African-American vote that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Yeah. And, you know, you see it in the trends that education is starting to become more of a polarizing thing uh, at the margins than race. Um, You see Republican gains in places with, you know, Hispanic populations. And there's really no reason that it couldn't be replicated with other communities. I mean, I think that your point is valid that you got to try, right? I mean, why would anybody vote for you if you don't, you know, have a message for them and try and ask for their votes? And and, and you can't just, I I would also probably say, you you can't just show up during election season and do it. It's something that I think elected officials should probably spend some time, you know, especially, I mean, I remember Haley telling uh, my old boss, Alan Nunley, that, you know, he should dedicate time in his official schedule for minority events, right? That he yeah. was a congressman for everybody. And, you know, if you do that consistently, again, you're not, it's not like you're going to carry a, a block that traditionally you don't carry is that you can cut into the margins, right? That's, you can gain exactly some right. support, you know, so and those margins can matter a lot. Margins <laughs> count. And look, it's harder. Let's just use Georgia as an example when you're getting outspent three to one and you got to use every dollar to turn out your base and you don't have the time. But on a county council race, city council, state house, state senate, if we start at the local level and just start carving out a couple percentages at a time, that stuff's going to start adding up over the years. And I think there should be a coordinated effort from the RNC, from the top down, saying, hey, at the local level, let's start reaching out to these communities. I mean, I, I especially think in the Hispanic community. and But even down here in the South, man, these African-Americans are are social conservatives. And when you start looking at the woke agenda of the Democrats, they don't like that shit, bro. You go into a black church and they don't like the shit that they're hearing from these white woke liberals. So we just have this opportunity that we've, we've never had before. And I just wish we would take advantage of it. Well, and the coalitions, you know, things shift around over time. I mean, there's a lot of people that used to be Republicans. And I think that's part of our problem in some of these states is that people are showing up in our data as Republicans that just really aren't anymore when they're typically, typically, you know, the higher income, higher education, white voters that used to be, you know, would break Republican. But a lot of those people are Democrats now. I mean, look at all these, I mean, <laughs> took a district across the country where all these suburban, you know, more affluent districts that uh, used to be ours, we took for granted that we'd have to compete for we're losing now. So if you're losing ground in one place, you certainly need to try to make it up somewhere else. So these things can move around, you know, the coalitions change and you know, the presidential nominees make a big difference in that. Um, you know, but yeah, I mean, if you're, 
if you're in the business of winning elections and you're not trying to at least compete for people's votes, uh, they could probably do it wrong. So, yeah, I love it, man. Well, look, you've been a massive asset to us this year. Great addition to the team and, um, just having a, a new senior leader, uh, overseeing all these young bucks over here has made a massive difference in our company, brother. So we appreciate all the hard work. Well, I just always tell people that, you know, I, I enjoy working in politics and it's, it's like, <laughs> I've never had a real job, so I'm just trying to keep it that way, you know, just, just keep working in politics, but Man, uh, it's, it's, I'll, I'll, you know. I just want to work with fun people. I just want to come to work and be like, I love working with those people and you're a fun dude yeah. to work with. So we appreciate yeah. you, man. Yeah. Thanks Wes. Appreciate it.